This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Fresca, and welcome back to the podcast. Tom, what do we got today? Today, with all the recent events that's been going on in the uh, country in 2020, and everyone's saying how 2020 is a year they can't wait to get over and how crazy it is, we're going to look back at another year that was um, just as crazy and had just as much just major events yeah. that shaped the world, and that would be 1968. So 1968 was one of those years, uh, you know, infamous years in American history that a lot of people tend to want to forget. Uh, it seemed that nothing, absolutely nothing went right in 1968 for our nation, um, yeah, as well as the world. A, but Definitely a black eye for the United States that whole year. Absolutely. And recent times, you know, in the past few months with Corona starting, I actually see a lot of comparisons being made in the media between 68 and, and um, 2020. The Atlantic just came out a couple months ago with an article they called, Is This the Worst Year in Modern American History? Comparing 2020 to 1968. So, you know, why don't we do that? Why don't we uh, try to compare 68 and kind of talk about yeah, the other we do. year? That... we do, right, Pete? That's what we do. That's <laughs> History right. repeats itself, and it's definitely uh, repeating in a lot of ways. I know you had your little article, um, not, not little, I apologize, but your article that was uh, talking about how the, with the pandemic and the pandemic of 1919, yep. right? You can find that online, guys. Just Google Peter Zablocki. You'll find a whole bunch of cool stuff. But, uh, but yeah, um... I did have an article I compared it to um, yeah, in a... But 1968 is another one where, um, although you don't have a pandemic exactly, there's a lot of political turmoil, probably up to that point, the most political turmoil you've seen in the country since the Civil War, I would say. Yeah, but uh, you know, you don't have a pandemic, but you have thousands of Americans dying. Yeah, uh, dying for another reason. Yeah, for for Vietnam. Vietnam. It's really in what we'll get into, but I'm sure that's really the year, this is the year 1968 where that anti-Vietnam movement really starts to take hold. It's really when the public starts to turn against the Vietnam up until that it was all pro Vietnam war for the most part. Like I'm generalizing there, but really after what we'll talk about um, here, what happens in 1968, that really starts to change. Yeah. So you know what? Why don't we start with Vietnam? I'm thinking maybe we could provide some uh, context. So I was gonna kind of start talking about just Vietnam up to that point, and also talk about the civil rights movement up to that point to kind of create a context. Right. Create yeah, context. Yeah. yeah. A little bit of information here. We could start with Vietnam, which is an extremely divisive war in American history. Yeah, it's one and that's one still being I'm, it's still being talked about. Like as far as like what's the narrative on like what do you really want to teach? Because it's 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 a it's when you look at it, it's not in you want to look at like militarily, did we accomplish our objective? No, but did we lose any battles? No. So it's yeah. it's it was very it's very complicated and it's still a lot of like the consequences that still take place there in Vietnam and abroad are still major from this conflict. Yeah. And also keep in mind that the wars prior to it, you know, when you have World War II and even Korea, uh, to a large extent were very patriotic wars. And people when you know they were drafted to go in kind of took it as all right, it's my duty and it's time yeah. to go. And this is what's different about Vietnam, Vietnam is changed, that yeah. Yeah, it just just completely hasn't been a drop since that. Vietnam. That's not a coincidence. Yeah, not a coincidence. That's and actually, coincidence. when the first war that we went into afterwards was, uh, you know, Persian Gulf War, nineteen ninety one, and you know, President H. W. Bush actually said, "This will not be another Vietnam again." Well, that's what we always want to avoid. They always say we don't want this to be Vietnam, like everything's going on in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? We don't want this to be another Vietnam, even though it's yeah. actually been longer than Vietnam at this point. 
Yeah. But you know, what we're going to be talking about today is really when that kind of changes. It actually happens in uh, January, so it's a good way to start, right? The beginning of 1968 is also one of these events where um, kind of shifts the narrative on the Vietnam War in the U.S. Kind of just before you get into that, Tom, which is, again, very important. You know, we need to bring this idea that the Vietnam War was very much a working class war. You got a deferment, you got a college deferment from being drafted if you went to college, at least initially. And that kind of, we'll get into why that changed a little bit later. But most of the people that attended college at this time were white and financially well off. I mean, statistics, you know, don't lie in that sense. So most of the people that fought in Vietnam were lower class whites and minorities. About 80% of American soldiers came from lower economic levels. Well, that's therefore the song, right? Making, fortunate, fortunate son, right? Yep. Therefore making Vietnam a working class war. And because of that, because African-Americans were, again, civil rights movement is kind of splintering at this point, which we'll get into as well in context. A lot of the people that are being drafted are African-American. And young. And That's what I think too. Very young. Very young. Um, oh, yeah. There's these, these, there were kids. It average that, age of what, 1920? I think was yep. like the average age. Absolutely. It said that African-Americans accounted for about 20% of all American combat deaths, despite the fact that they're only made up 10% of the entire U.S. population. MLK, very, very known civil rights leader at the time, kind of holding back, not talking about against Vietnam. He doesn't want to talk about Vietnam. He doesn't want to do it. And in 67, so right before the events that we're about to talk about, he finally breaks down and he has to address the fact that so many people and so many African-Americans are dying in Vietnam. You know, I have a quote from him where he says, we were taking the young black men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Harlem. We have been repeatedly faced with a cruel irony of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to stem together in the same schools. You know, that kind of brings it, you know, the picture and how divisive this is becoming. There is a humongous movement that's growing that's essentially an anti-war movement. And it starts off kind of really in colleges. And again, this is just to provide context of when you know things kind of get really messy in 68. So you have the New Left Movement and you have the Students for Democratic Society. And they kind of were against this idea that Corporations, they thought that corporations and large government institutions had taken over America and they wanted greater individual freedom. Sound ironic. Familiar? Sound familiar? Yeah, ironic, right? Ironic. Exactly. Yeah. This is the birth of all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. you know, these guys are kind of going against this big government and against these corporations and kind of fighting for the little guy. Um, and it starts off with campus activism. So, dress codes, curfews, dormitory regulations, stuff like that. But then the protest kind of shifts and it shifts into you know, kind of just overall against, you know, you have young people going against government policies and government as a whole and establishment. The protests grow and grow. And then in February of 1966, Johnson's administration kind of changes the deferment for college students uh, trying to get out of the draft. And it required students to be in good academic standing in order to be granted a deferment. And that kind of led to campuses around the country just erupting in protests. March in Washington in, in 65, 20,000 protesters. Another march in November of that same year, 65, in Washington uh, also drew 30,000. So it's just, it seems like when you put the TV on, if you're not looking at pictures of the war and death and 
And that's what was on TV every night too. Like the yeah. Vietnam War was a war that was televised. They would actually do it almost like today if you were like a, like a sporting event and they'd give like the score. They would give like – you'd watch the news and they give like a score like our body count, how many of our soldiers died, how many Viet, Viet Cong were killed. You know, yeah. and that's kind of what we're going in here because every day they're seeing that there's more and more of these Viet Cong, Vietnamese soldiers being killed. Oh, we have to be winning this war. It has to be over. And they're telling the American public any day now this war is going to be over. It's coming to an end. It's coming to an end. The boys are going to be coming home. And then 1968 changes that narrative. Yep. Well, on January 30th, 1968, the North Vietnamese launched what becomes known as the Tet Offensive against the United States and South Vietnamese. And it's, um, like I said, it was kind of signified the beginning of the end of the U.S. involvement. This is when the protests really started to take off after this. The Viet Cong, which are the Vietnamese communists, they coordinate an attack by over 85,000 of them, coordinate this massive attack on 36 major cities in South Vietnam, and it caught the U.S.-led forces totally by surprise. And it's because it happened during the Vietnamese holiday of Tet, which is almost like their New Year. Mm. And normally it was one of these, um, it was a Lunar New Year, it was one of these times where like both sides kind of had this like unofficial ceasefire. Mm-hmm. So they really weren't expecting an attack. And the reason what – and eventually the U.S., they do take back all of these um, – the towns and all the city, all the land quickly, that they lost. Very quickly, actually. Very yeah. quickly. But but showing this on the news and like if we're about to beat them, how are they able to mass this sort of attack? How, yeah. And if they're supposed to be – if they're supposed to be backwards and not know what's going on, how do they coordinate? Yeah, they set up a bunch of villagers, you know, running around. They yeah. couldn't. And all of a sudden they coordinate, you know, like you're saying, Tom, they coordinate an attack, you know, like yeah. it's it, a it narrative. And if, yeah, the narrative is kind of like, false. The people at home are like, there's no way. They're like, is the government lying to us? Like, yeah. remember, this is the 1960s. You have some of that, but it's still that whole, like, the government would never do that. The, you know, the, the Watergate hasn't happened yet, you know. So that's really what makes people start to become aware of the government. I'm sure we'll do something on that in the future. Yeah. But it's really like, so what we're being told isn't necessarily the truth. And that's some, it's a real wake-up call, like you said. It's, and it happens first at the colleges, but then it starts to get into a lot of the mainstream America, too during this time because they're just like this war is not going to be over we've been in the we've you know we've had troops there since the 50s really right yeah and they're just like and it really started to escalate more with johnson but now they're just like this is just crazy like this war is not going to be over more of these young boys are going to come home kill you know in body bags or maimed which is a something that we can get to us another time i'm sure I don't waste time yeah. on it today but remember that was the Viet Cong strategy they didn't necessarily want to kill you. they wanted to maim you they, they wanted to send these boys home, missing arms, missing legs, so that that would scare the other people and scare the mothers. That was what they would say. Like, the mothers aren't going to want to send their sons to war to come home missing arms and legs. So that was like their strategy. Think about it. The, you know, you have very similar to what you have today is just complete distrust in government and not just distrust, but almost like a disgust in government. In October of 67, again, so we're getting closer. You know, now uh, Ted Offensive happens in January of 68. So almost like 68 just starts off bad. But yeah. right before, in October of 67, there was a demonstration at Washington's Lincoln Memorial that drew 75,000 protesters, right? There were speeches. There was like 30,000 um, demonstrators at the end of this decided to lock arms and march in the Pentagon. So they do. They march in the Pentagon. And once they get there, you know, they kind of broke past the military that was protecting the Pentagon. And they mounted the steps. And they were met by, you know, tear gas and clubs and about 1,500 demonstrators were injured and at least 700 arrested. What you see today is essentially happening here. You have a military hitting protesters and using tear gas against protesters. There's this distinction between, well, are we talking about rioters or are we talking about protesters? Is there a difference? And there is a difference. And that's kind of what's coming out at this time, specifically 
becomes intensified because of the Tet Offensive. Like, government is not necessarily honest with us. Um, New York Times did a poll. And we have to mention New York Times is kind of um, more liberal. It's more liberal, yeah. Yeah. Even then, especially yeah. now. But um, so they did a, a poll right before the Tet Offensive, and it showed that 28% of Americans called themselves doves, meaning that they were pro-peace. And uh, 56% claimed to be hawks. Well, after the Tet Offensive, a new poll was taken uh, about a month or so after, and both sides tallied about 40%. So things started to definitely change. And one of the people that kind of brought that home, like you were saying, Tom, this idea of on the news and seeing, if you watch documentaries on Vietnam, you have actual journalists that are literally, there's bullets flying around them. And they're like walking up to soldiers that are shooting like shooting literally in the middle of battle. And they're like, how do you feel right now? How, how do you, how, you want to talk about it? And the guy's like, I'd rather be home. And he starts shooting again. You know, it's, it, it's surreal how real this was in the news every day. And then Walter Cronkite, who everyone, uh, he was, you know, the most respected journalist probably in American history. That's when he goes on TV after Ted Offensive. And he's like, yeah, we're not winning this war. And that's when people are like, what's happening? And this is, you know, 1968. And we should also mention that 1968 is the year that the United States had the most soldiers in Vietnam out of all the years and the most deaths in Vietnam. So, you know, by 68, there was about 536,000 troops in Vietnam, the highest number out of all the years between 63 and 72. Again, just kind of showing how you have 68 being that pivotal year. So, right. So next thing that's kind of happening here because of Vietnam, another thing you have going here is there's some assassinations that happen. Again, before we get into the assassinations, let's talk a little bit about the civil rights movement up to that point, you know, because the civil rights movement changes around 60, between 65 and 68. Uh, Primarily it changes because a lot of young African-Americans Although the Civil Rights Act is passed, Civil Rights Act of uh, 1964, that ultimately ends segregation, schools are desegregated, there is a big conversation between de facto segregation and the jury segregation, right? Oh, the base, yeah, so you're basically, the idea is basically, yeah, it's illegal, but it's still basically happening. Yep. So even though that they're going to acknowledge, right, it's illegal, yeah, we're not, we're not, there's no white and black water fountains and stuff like that. They're still finding, when I say they, people who want to, who want to segregate, want to keep their races separate, they're still finding ways, whether it's things like uh, poll taxes, which eventually become yep. outlawed, right? Or you're going to have those literacy tests, or you're going to have some neighborhoods, just which the are people hard. Themselves. I mean, I try to give them to my oh, students. Yeah. I'm like, guys, you know, like, yeah. if you, they, they wouldn't test. pass. Yeah. And they're like, they what? Pass. I mean, it was, they were not meant for a person to pass. No, anyway. and really, what they, they weren't even really giving them to the white voters either. They were just giving them to the, mi- to the minority voters. Absolutely. So, um, so the fact of segregation kind of really intensified after the African-Americans migrated to northern cities uh, during and after World War II. And this kind of began what became known as white flight. So you have white people that chose to essentially move to the suburbs as opposed to stay in the cities. And then yeah. what happened is cities became predominantly African-American and suburbs became predominantly white. And a lot of the money that was being spent on businesses, local businesses and things like that were, were going to the suburbs. You know, they were going away from the cities, which really kind of by 1960s, it created the, you know, 
really the urban centers were decaying. You know, there were slums. Well, they, yeah, what you have is then the jobs are leaving. Yeah. So the money's not being spent, like you were saying. And schools, so even schools, happening. right? Because the white kids weren't going to the city schools. The, school, the schools are, are not getting the funding. So what's going to happen is you get that urban, like you were saying, and then there's no job. So a lot of the youth then, what happens, they, they join gangs. They resort to crime. That sort of really starts to take flight. Drugs become big. You know, so you're looking at this, and this this is another thing that kind of brings us to where you, you have a lot of tension now between white police and African-American inner city you know, population. Again, sound familiar? If we just right. don't say this is 1968, we, oh, we could be talking 20, about 20. today, right? We can talking about yesterday. Yes, exactly. You know, in mid-1960s, uh, there's a lot of clashes between white authority uh, police officers and black um, civilians, and it kind of spread like wildfire. So New York City, July 1964, there was an encounter with a white police officer and an African-American teenager, and it resulted in the death of the 15-year-old teenager. And this sparked a massive race riot in central Harlem. Within a year, August 11th, 1965, just five days after President Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act into law, you have one of the worst riots in the nation's history ever, the Watts riot in Los Angeles. 34 people killed, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of property destroyed. Then in 66, you see even more racial disturbances. And in 67 alone, riots and violent clashes take place in more than 100 cities. Again, like almost like looking in a mirror, 2020, 68. And why do you think that's the case though, Pete? You think it's a case of like just history repeating itself? It's a case of like, you know, what was going on in the 60s, like what we're talking about today with 68, was the problem just not fixed? I don't think, yeah, you know, like, that's honestly yeah, my thing. I think it was kind of just kind of brushed over, like kind of put like a little Band-Aid over it, but it wasn't enough to actually well, think about fix it. it. Yeah, by, by 2000, right, 28% of blacks in the South and 50% of blacks in the Northeast were attending schools with fewer than 10% yeah. whites. You know, things haven't really changed. It's de facto versus the jury segregation. Yeah, by law, we're not segregated. But in fact, you know, people are segregated. And socioeconomically, yeah. they are segregated. Yeah, socioeconomic. That's, that's the big thing they're talking about. It's a socioeconomic factor um, that they're just brought – they just don't have that same – the chances, basically, yeah. like this, or the same background. And, and, and that leads to frustra frustration. And even led to – you know, when you have this urban violence erupting, it, it also leads to the splintering of the civil rights movement itself. And that's – this is where the idea of black power is born. People believe that, yes – segregation is over and MLK was successful. However, he was unable, this nonviolence, a lot of young African-Americans believe that this nonviolence didn't really lead to equality, you know, and that's where Malcolm X comes in and that's where Stokely Carmichael comes in and that's where Black Panthers come in. A lot of people think that Black Panthers, you know, Black Panthers, oftentimes, if you look at pictures and, you know, they dressed in black leather jackets, black berets and sunglasses, and they, you know, they had guns with them and they followed police cars. But ultimately, the organization started in inner cities, two reasons, one, to counter um, police brutality. And the other thing is these guys were about, I mean, they had soup kitchens, the Black Panthers, you know, they had you know, like lunch programs. The idea was to kind of really help, I guess, unfairness towards young African-Americans. Um, in 68, while this stuff is happening, we have these riots, the Black Panther movement is kind of taken away from MLK. And MLK actually kind of objected to Black Power movement. You know, he believed that preaching violence could only end in grief. That was his view. He's planning to lead this Poor People's March in Washington, D.C., but he never really gets to that. So in 68... What happens, Tom? Well, then, April fourth of uh, nineteen sixty-eight, uh, Martin Luther King is actually 
visiting Memphis, Tennessee. And while there, he's standing on the second floor balcony of the Lauren Motel when he is struck by a bullet around uh, 6 o'clock p.m. He was only 39 years old uh, when time has happened. He was rushed to a hospital where he was, where he, he never regained consciousness. Then about an hour later, he was uh, pronounced dead. Obviously, you know, the man that was found guilty of murdering him was James Earl Ray. He was captured shortly afterwards. Um, the fingerprints were traced back to his gun. He admitted to he it did, at first, and then he, he was admitted like... admitted at first and recanted, and I was doing research on this a while ago, and there's, I'm not going to get into conspiracy theories, but there's members of King's own family I don't believe that um, James Earl Ray was a murderer. Yeah, I think King's son met with him yeah. in jail. Yeah, he's like, he's, like, he didn't, he's like, he didn't kill my dad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Or he does eventually. He... Um, James Wright always tried to withdraw his uh, guilty plea and get a new trial, never did. And yeah. he did die in prison in 1998. And that's something that we can look at another time. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. With, with that, but um, you were talking about four out the riots, and that's what one of the things, like, obviously King, famous individual, civil rights leader, but his death, when the news of his death starts to spread around the country, it actually leads to riots, which is Absolutely. something that King would have not wanted, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does happen, particularly in Washington, D.C., there's massive riots. Um, that, oh, yeah, uh, it was like 20,000, crowds of 20,000 overwhelmed, you know, like 3,100 yeah. police members, you know? Federal they troops are like 12,000 federal they troops are called the, in. Uh, the downtown area of Washington, D.C. was just uh, destroyed. They it was burnt to the ground. Yeah, I mean, they literally they brought in the 3rd Infantry to guard the White House. Burned down buildings. Damages in Washington, D.C. reached like $27 million, you know, in 1960s money. And this happened by 11 p.m. the day he was killed. Like, it wasn't like it happened day. It was like the same day he was killed as news spread. Man, this is the 60s, so, you know, there is like TV and, you know, news wires. It's not as fast as it would be today. But the news does spread rather quickly. By 11 p.m., there's riots, not just in D.C., but 30 cities across the country, major cities across the country, are rioting for their upset. Like, this was our man. This is our voice. He's preaching nonviolence, and now he's getting us, and now he's, he's, he was shot and killed. Yeah, and again, very similar to what you see today. I mean, just beyond comprehensible damage, and, and people are frustrated, and people are upset. Again, you have the military that comes out. You know, the government comes out to fight against people because now there's again that distinction as i mentioned before like are we talking people that are protesting or are we talking people that are rioting you know it's different again millions of dollars in damages and it's not just washington dc because i mean after mlk's it was like a hundred cities exploded you know in flames baltimore was one of the big ones chicago kansas city washington dc obviously as we said before 1968 people by that point are like you know it's april it's only april until like 1968, and then um, that they're not. You know, we're not done in that year with assassinations. And the next assassination um, happens uh, June 5th, right? Yeah. When um, R.F. Kennedy, right, Robert F. Kennedy, the younger brother of JFK, just a few years after his brother was assassinated, um, he's running for president. He's um, well, he's t- he's going to be running for president. Yeah, and he was actually assassinated at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. Saran, right? Saran. Um, Strong opened fire, hitting Kennedy in the head and back. He collapsed, was rushed to the hospital, underwent brain surgery, and he was pronounced dead the next day. He was only 42. 
Yep. I think he's, and he it, looked at his wife. Last, one of the last words was like, said, yeah. is it like, is it, is it bad or something like that? Yeah, is it bad? Yeah, because he wasn't sure. And it was, uh, recently there was something with the um, – he was like a busboy. Um, I remember seeing something uh, on the anniversary of his death this year, the busboy that was like – He like, caught Andy as he was falling. Yeah, they brought him to the kitchen to like what was going on. Because what's surprising about this, and we'll get into more of it in a minute, but the surprising about this one is that Robert Kennedy, as famous as he was, he didn't have any security with him. They didn't get um, Secret Service protection yet. Now, like if you're a viable presidential candidate, you get protected. You have Secret Service protection. They didn't have this. So this guy just walked right up to him right after the speech. Sirhan Sirhan just walked right up to him and opened fire. And I don't think they ever really got like a real reason why he did it. Yeah. And also, right? this Sirhan's is very important too because, you know, and this kind of brings us to our last, and not last thing, but another thing in this 1968, this is important because RFK, at least to the young people and the Democrats, was seen as yeah. as hope, you know? Yeah. Um, he was he, Kenny, your brother. He served with Kenny Wright as the attorney yeah. general. He was he. This guy was going to be all right. Now we're getting another Kennedy back in the White House, right? Yep. most people say if he ran, he he had a really good chance of winning, just based on the popularity factor. The factor that you know JFK was still so popular, he was going to kind of like ride that a little bit. He was a smart guy. Um, you know, he was well liked. He yep. was well liked in the party, so he had a really good chance of winning. He was also running on the idea. I mean. He was running an idea of equality and civil rights. And, and the Vietnam War. And Vietnam like, War. Yeah, he was the guy that was the progressive answer to yeah. Lyndon Johnson, who was the you know old school establishment president. Ironically, Democrat. You know, so that's different. That's the thing. He's running against his own party. Yeah, he kind yeah. of split away. And so John, I think we should talk about that. That's another thing that you know <laughs> you're looking at. Just politics are in complete disarray in '68. Thousands of Americans are dying. Um, young men are, are drafted into war. You have race riots throughout the nation. You have one of the most important 20th century leaders, uh, MLK, just assassinated. You have a second Kennedy assassination in the same decade. The hope of a generation. Yeah, the hope of a generation. It, it, I mean, things are just literally crumbling in yeah. 1968. And then the one thing we kind of need to really talk about it is the disarray in the Democratic Party that is yeah. in control of, you know, in the government at the time. Um, Which happens in August of 68, right? It's just yeah. like we, Democrats recently recently had their uh, convention this year, which was all on yeah. like uh, online. It just happened. Right? Yeah, or, it just happened. It's online. Yeah. But here, the Democratic uh, Party splintering. This is the crazy thing. You have Lyndon Baines Johnson, first of all, has having a rough time. I mean, this guy, before Vietnam, institutes what is known as the Great Society Program. And Which looks great on paper. Absolutely. Um, actually, if if Vietnam didn't happen, it's a lot of those what ifs in history. But if Vietnam didn't happen, he would have probably been as revered as FDR. He would have been the second FDR, you know, with his New Deal versus Great Society. But that didn't really happen, obviously. I mean, you have to pay for Vietnam. You can't yeah. have, you know. I mean, wars, wars are expensive. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, LBJ used to wake up to chance outside the White House. LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? I mean, this guy was going did through a lot. Someone set fire to themselves on the White House lawn. Yeah. Right yeah. outside the White House. That's when he's like, I'm not running again. That's yeah, he's basic. like, I can't do this. And that's kind of, yeah, you good point, Tom. That's kind of where I was going with this, is his own party in six and eight, you know, 68 primary elections, Eugene McCarthy comes out of nowhere and he's like, I'm going to challenge him for, for president. Like, You're sitting president. This yeah. would be like someone, this would be like a Republican saying, I'm going to run against Trump. Yep, I'm running against Trump. It's just going to happen. Trump, which you don't do. Yep. It's like Cruz saying, I'm running against Trump. Like, it's, it's something that doesn't happen. You don't run against your incumbent president when he's looking for re election. Yep. You have to show that, you know, um, 
loyalty to your party, but the Democrats didn't have that in 1968. No, no, Eugene McCarty's like, I'm running and I'm going to go against Vietnam. And my platform is all about ending the war in Vietnam. And he doesn't really, I mean, he's, first of all, he's not really a known senator. It's March 68 in the New Hampshire Democratic primary. McCarthy gets about 42% of the vote and Johnson wins the primary with 48% of the vote. So he won, but the slim margin of victory kind of was a defeat. Like he knows like, wow, my own party is kind of against me. And that's also when Robert Kennedy, RFK is like, all right, I wasn't going to throw my hat in the ring because I didn't think it was, like you said, I didn't think it was the right thing to do. But someone else is doing it. I He's can, like, I'm just know. going for it, you know? And, and, then, and then he does. And this is the time to do it. And then you have uh, shocking, you know, ultimately, you have famous LBJ speech where Lyndon Baines Johnson, the president of the United States, who is running for re-election, all of a sudden goes on national television he says, I will not seek and I will not um, accept yeah, I will the not- nomination of my party for another term as real president. And people are like, what? Like, So he basically quit. Yeah, he quits. He says, yeah. when my term is over, I'm done. I'm not coming back. Yeah, I'm not doing this. Uh, Too hard. I'm done. Which is, again, more terminal for 68. It's like, wait, what? Like, You have all these people that are still for him. And they're like, wait. So, so think about it. All the people that are pro-Vietnam and their kids are in Vietnam, they kind of feel like, betrayed in a sense it's like this guy took my kids to vietnam and now he's like yeah i'm getting out yeah like I, like the, the country's in turmoil and the president the guy who's supposed to help them the guy who's in charge is like you know i'm done like i'm not uh, this is too much for me the, i mean like, the, that, literally uh, the democratic uh, party's uh, falling yeah, apart they're falling apart and then yeah it really comes ahead and, and then the people are frustrated and that's what comes ahead in august right at yeah. the democratic national convention oh, in chicago right, so go ahead so what happens where the um what happens basically is a lot of anti-war protesters there and they get in a battle with police, all right? Mm-hmm. And what may, and this has happened before, but what difference is because there's so much um, news people there. There's like 10,000 protesters. Really. Yeah, because of the because of the Democratic National Convention, all everything gets captured, okay? It all gets videotaped. So it's all broadcast on the national televised audience. So a lot of these people, for the first time, they're seeing some of this. That's what you see in the civil rights movement too. When people, it's one thing if you hear about how people are getting, you know, dogs sicked at them or you know, shot with fire hoses. And you actually see it; it's a lot different. Yep. So it's the first time a lot of people in the country are seeing this, and it led to a huge expansion of the anti-war protests. But what it also did is it really um, scared a lot of people. Absolutely. And this is what opens the door for Nixon to become president because Nixon talks about this. Oh, in he's totally a benef- like beneficiary. He's, he's like, all right, right, this is perfect. And he says what this is, is I, I'm appealing to the silent majority of Americans who do not go out and protest, who are frightened by seeing this protest and this anarchy that we're seeing in the streets. So they, the other protesters are viewed as these dangerous radicals, right? These like anarchists mm-hmm. that want to overthrow the government. And if you don't want the government to be overthrown, vote for Nixon. He's a law and order candidate. Okay. Again, sound familiar? Yeah, right. Like it's the same stuff. It, it as I'm just saying, it, I'm just like getting these like images in my head of like just watching, you know, the speeches on TV of from from the um, uh, the Trump Trumps and Trump supporters. Okay, yeah. again, not getting political on this podcast, yeah. but you're seeing you're seeing the same rhetoric on both sides, where one side's calling the other side radicals, or do you seeing the protests? Oh, they're 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 protesting. They're they're not doing it for the um, they're not protesters. They're thugs, right? Sending the Send in the forces, send in the police to in tear gas them and things like that. It's the same narrative happening in 1968 and in 2020 over different reasons, um, but also the core reason of racial inequality. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it's, it's very interesting. I mean, there is 
so much that yeah that we uh, we can go into with this. Obviously, we're and just kind of you know, yeah. going on, on the surface. And people here, could but. see this. I mean, you guys could YouTube this, and and there's plenty you know people that you know listen to a podcast too that were alive during this time. They could remember this. Oh, yeah. When I talk to some people that were teenagers or adults in 68, and I talk to them about just today, and I keep on saying, you know, they're saying, oh, 2020, right? But they tell me, you know, this this too shall pass. Uh, they say, I lived through the 60s. I lived in 68. And, you know, we thought the world was falling apart, and we got through it. At this national convention, Democratic National Convention, I mean, there was like 12,000 Chicago police officers, like over 5,000 National Guard. Talk about like militarizing it, you know? And they, you know, these police officers with cameras focused, like you're saying on them, they move into the crowd and they spray protesters with mace. They beat them with nightsticks. And there's videos of uh, protesters all bloody screaming. The whole world is watching, you know, as it's again, it's surreal what you're seeing. Uh, Hotels, nearby hotels in downtown Chicago had to be turned into like makeshift hospitals and aid stations. I mean, this is just surreal. Surreal, yeah. Um, especially if you're an American, you hear about this stuff, but you're watching on TV for the first time, especially in like you know the Midwest, yeah. and you're seeing what's going on. You're you're scared, you know. You you still might have that trust in the government, and everything like that. And it's it's when then when Nixon comes and he's saying you no know, that law and order appeal. That's what gets him elected. That's what helps gets him elected. I I really feel, and a lot of historians will say this: without that riot at the '68 convention, Nixon doesn't become president. Yeah, I agree. I concur. And sitting with RFK, I think RFK, if he wasn't assassinated. Yeah. There's so many what ifs in history, you know? It's so interesting. But just in this year, you have, or in the, in the span of a few months at this point. Yeah, talk um, about the first six months, right? Watch. First six months, Tom, of 1968, right? 40,000 students on more than 100 campuses took part in more than 200 major demonstrations, right? I mean, crazy. In New York City, right? Columbia like, University, I think it was 68. Yeah. It was in 68. Columbia University. In April, students protesting universities' community policies take over buildings, and police eventually has to restore order. And like they arrested nine hundred protesters because they took over Columbia University. I mean, surreal. And then, like before we you know, move on from the political aspect here, you know, then you have George Wallace kind of puts his you know hat in the ring, as they say. And George Wallace is a former um, Alabama governor, and he's the third party candidate, and he doesn't win. Um, he also gets shot, actually. That's a whole other story. But uh, he was a longtime champion of school segregation, uh, states' rights, um, you know, what was considered by many at the time to be very racially charged policies. And he gets a decent amount of votes. And that also kind of scares a lot of Americans that, you know, there's still the, people voting for this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's still people out there that, you know, that vote for this guy and, and want this guy. Absolutely. Again, you know, I actually had a few students when, you know, this corona thing started. I had a few students reach out to me um, in the last few months of the school year when we were already in lockdown. And they were like, I, I can't, you know, one student said, I can't watch TV. I can't watch the news. I, I don't, you know, Mr. Z, like, what, what's going on here? And I told them that same thing. Like, you know, you have to look at history and, you know, look at it pointed them to 1968. For many people that were your age, it seemed to be very, very similar. As different as it is, obviously, it is very similar. You know, you and I kind of talked briefly about a couple other things that happened in 68 um, that might, I guess that might fall into, I mean, I don't know if we could call it Well, before we get to that, there's a couple, another big event that I would like to bring up that kind of deals in kind of like 
put maybe a bow on the whole civil rights issues, some mm-hmm. of the civil rights issues in the 60s. So we have obviously leaders being killed. We have the riots. But you also have um, protests that are taking place, similar to what you're seeing just recently, how the NBA, that they uh, protested in uh, some of the Black, La- Black Lives Matter yep. movement, how they refused to play in some of those playoff games, right? During mm-hmm. the week, this, I think Friday, they started playing again. And that was in October of 68. You actually had the Summer Olympics taken on in Mexico City. And I'm sure you remember this, yeah. um, you know, out here with the two American medalists, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, after they win the 200 meter race, they're awarded the gold and bronze medals. And as the Star Spangled Banner is played, they bow their heads and raise a their fist in the air with a black glove oh, on it. Yep. And they are actually booed as they are leaving yep. the Olympic Stadium from, from doing this. And they took them away. They actually took their medals away. Well, they get kicked off the team yep. shortly after. Yeah, and they're um, no longer able to represent the United States. Yeah, two days later they were expelled from the team, and then we. But when they came home, they were hailed as heroes by members of the African American community. Now, nowadays, when they interview them, when they interview actually a guy who gets a lot of interview is the um, Australian um, Peter Norman. He was the mm-hmm. Australian who won the silver medal because he he didn't wear the glove, but he also wore the same pins that they wore, mm-hmm. and he supported their decision. They told him they were going to do it ahead of time. He's like, "Yeah, go for it," you know. So yeah, he gets. They, now they're looked as heroes, but in this time they weren't. Yep. They were really looked at as like, how dare you bring politics into the Olympic Games? Yeah, it was like the kneeling thing, you know. Except yeah, they, like, how, yeah. how you do it? We're like, well, we we know it's on TV. We're going to bring attention to our cause. We're going to bring attention to the plight of what's going on in in our country. They meant that as a peaceful kind of like you want to call it a protest, bring awareness, whatever, however they want to say it. But yeah, it caused a lot of hatred mm-hmm. and a lot of anger that that that, that they would do this. Yeah, they were like they were threatened, obviously stuff like that, and uh, it just kind of shows that you know there was just doing something like that. It's just a lot of that racial tension still in the United States, as you still have today. But uh, people were really upset by this, yeah. uh, just raising, raising them doing what they did. They thought it was de- uh, you know taken away from the national anthem. How dare you do that? Just like what you saw, yeah, like you were saying, Pete, with the with the kneeling yeah. before football games, basketball games, all that stuff. Yeah, you know, and, and what else you got for '68? Again, it seems like, I mean, again, fun facts are not fun facts, but, you know, there's a lot of things that are happening in 68. Obviously, based on what we said, it was a, a, a terrible year, to say the least. But, you know, there's some interesting things happening, right? That may not necessarily be right. We were talking about this right before we uh, yeah. started to record. But in November of um, 1968, one of your favorite shows, right? Star Trek. Yeah. The original Star Trek series actually has the first ever, the first time on, on American television, the first interracial kiss yep. when uh, Captain Kurt and is, uh, yep. kisses Aurora. And I think it isn't he being like controlled or being, I never it is. saw this. It is. I, yeah. So to make it more acceptable, even though they were completely breaking barriers, you know, um, it, they were being controlled by this like out of this world power that made them do it. But still, I mean, monumental in a sense, you know. I know that like uh, it was on NBC. They made them film an alternate version thing because they were afraid that certain like you know um, TV affiliates in the South particularly would refuse to show it. And then um, Shatner, like William Shatner, who was like really supportive of this interracial kiss, he knew what it was going to be. Um, so he used to, he purposely like ruined all the alternative takes. So the only take that they could actually use was the was the interracial one. Like whenever they made him kiss like a white woman, he just like messed it up on purpose yeah. and stuff like that. Like licked her nose that. or something. But he was doing it on purposely just to have that. And then apparently in the episode, Kurt, I found this quote, Kurt says in the line, where I come from, 
size, shape, or color makes no difference. That's what Kirk says in the episode. Kind of, you know, they, they, again, it's supposed to take place in the future, but they're kind of like referencing, you know, that Earth at some point gets over this whole issue. Absolutely. So um, I thought I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I agree. It's just like things like this that how like really it shouldn't be that big of a deal, right? Yeah. If you think about it, like, like I'm sure the kids say like, what, "What does that even matter?" Right? But in the 1968, that's a big deal. Showing us on national televised TV, right? A white man and a and an African American woman kissing on TV, like that's just like wow. Oh my God! Because remember, in, up until it was actually illegal for that even to happen. Yep, it was. Look at look at the book. I'm sure everybody reads in uh, English class, right? To kill a mockingbird. Yep. You, you don't. That's that's something that's not supposed to happen. Uh, it, that's not what. That's not right. That's not what society says is okay. You hear they're having it on TV, which is a form of entertainment, right? A form of escape, and they're making this like social like um, statement on TV, and that's a, it's a big deal. It's a try of also showing how television is evolving too, where it's not just going to be that leave it to Beaver type of stuff anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I just thought, no, I think that's a yeah. November it was it was a November, right? Yeah, November. Yeah, it was November. Some of the other things that, that kind of come out of 68, when, you know, and I think that's a conversation we could be having about 2020 today and, you know, where do we go from here? And again, I'm a firm believer that things, you know, will get better. But, you know, some of the changes, long-term implications. Uh, after Nixon wins, right? So he carries 32 states. He kind of starts this like long stretch of Republican dominance, you know, in the White House. Um, and, you know, and actually because of the White House, um, also, the Supreme Court, as we know, the president gets to appoint judges to the Supreme Court. So you have, you know, the the GOP wins like five of the six presidential races in that period, you know, two by Nixon, two by Reagan and one by George Bush. Not until Jimmy Carter. So that's kind of how much the Democratic Party tarnished itself with how they dealt with the turmoil that was happening. You really don't start to get looked at. Well, they were by their followers, but looked at as a positive light. They don't have that beacon. Because Jimmy Carter was a great man, but he's not seen as a great president. No, by no means. He's still, yeah, of- that guy's still alive. God bless. He's still alive. Yeah. 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 I mean, he's won the Nobel Prize, I believe, since um, his presidency, the Peace Prize. Um, but really, you don't see like a big time Democratic presidential candidate or uh, president really until Clinton, you know? Yeah. Um, but as far as like popularity and as far as just like that widespread appeal, because he did appeal to the to Republicans also, Clinton. Yeah. Um, especially during his first term. I think that uh, I think that kind of just about wraps it up for us. Thanks for joining us, guys, and until next week, Pete signing off. Tom Reska, take it easy, guys. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become 
Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.